This is Undisciplined, academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. Now let's get into it. Previously on Undisciplined, we heard part one of our conversation with Dr. Calvin White Jr. We spoke about his upbringing in the Church of God in Christ denomination in his book, The Rise to Respectability, Race, Religion, and the Church of God in Christ, that was released in 2012. You can hear that part of the conversation in the episode titled, Take Me to Church, in our podcast feed. We continue our conversation with Dr. White to talk about his other research topics and how those topics came to him. What got you interested in Oscar DePriest? A mistake. <laughs> like most research. I was at the Schumberg. Uh, I was finishing. I was a Schumberg fellow. And I was there and I was doing some research and one of the archivists pulled a file. And it was a mistake. It was the wrong file. And it, one of the files were about Oscar Stan DePriest, gentleman that I had never heard of it. Never heard of. And Matthew, you, sh- you should have heard of him. He's from Chicago, Illinois. Yep, never heard of and him. He is the first African. <laughs> <laughs> he's from Chicago. Uh, his, you know, his, you know, he's, his roots are from Alabama. And as a result of the, the, the uh, Great Compromise, 1877, his parents will flee uh, Reconstruction at the end of Reconstruction in Alabama, settle in Kansas. And from Kansas, he makes his way into Chicago. And he's a part of that first early migration of migrational wave. And he is a go-getter. He sees Chicago for what it, what it is. He makes a ton of money. He makes a fortune off of what we refer to as blockbusting. Dr. Batten talked about redlining. And so as blacks, as these new wave of blacks, these are pushing up from the South, he was able to buy up land and homes where whites were fleeing and moving out and selling them and renting them to other African-Americans who were trying to move from this wave of blacks who were coming in. And he makes a fortune off of blockbusting. He goes into politics and he is the only African-American that sits in Congress from 1928 until 1934 when he's beat by Arthur Mitchell. And Arthur Mitchell was the first African-American to run on a national ticket as a Democrat. And so in this book, he becomes what's known as the Negro congressman. He's the representative of the race. He travels extensively. He looks at things. He argues about segregation under the Capitol dome, the restaurant dome. He has a big blow up with Franklin Delano Roosevelt because he's not a New Dealer. He's a Republican and he's anti-New Deal. So I'm looking at his life and his legacy and what he meant to the state of Illinois but not only the state of Illinois, but the people, blacks of the country. And the thesis of the book is I am arguing that Oscar the Priest is the first casualty, political casualty, little political casualty of this massive realignment as African-Americans flee the Republican Party or the party of Lincoln into the party of, of the Democratic Party. And so I use his life to show this massive realignment that happens as a result, what I argue that starts in earnest in 1934. So that's the, you know, that's the subject of the book that I'm, I'm writing, currently writing right now. Can you talk a little bit about the, the 
party switch that eventually happens? And, and do you think that that kind of is a precursor to what happens there when we think of the Democratic and Republican Party in America? I think it's a natural transition. The priest was a part of what we refer, I refer to as the old guard. The last African-American to sit in Congress was in 1901, and he's from North Carolina. And he, his last day in Congress, he gives this roaring speech on the House floor. Where he talks about, you're going to have to grow used to seeing people like me in Congress. And so he's a bridge from those old Reconstruction politicians, this wave of black politicians that sit during Reconstruction. And so I like to say that he hands this off to the priest in 1928 when, when he arrives, when he arrives there. What you're starting to see happen as a result of this is African-Americans are really in need of relief programs. They believe in relief programs. They, and, and I want to talk about this because we talk about this when we get to the book. At this point, we're not talking about welfare, Matthew. Mm-hmm. We're talking about relief programs. We're talking about governmental assistance. We're talking, there's not welfare. African-Americans are desperately in need of that, but because of Oscar DePriest's politics, he is a staunch Republican, like all of those before him was. You've got to remember, no respectable African-American would ever have been a part member of the Democratic Party. They just, it was a party of white Southerners, the same party that oppressed them. And what he doesn't realize is this whole paradigm shift that is occurring it starts earlier, even with Eleanor, with Eleanor Roosevelt. I mean, and some of the olive branches and some of the, this slow transition that starts to happen. And it climaxes as a result of, of his failure to deliver what many people in the 2nd District of Chicago believe to be adequate relief as a result of rendering aid to African-Americans as a result of the depression in the same manner in which whites were receiving that aid. He didn't like it and he wouldn't support it because he was not a Democrat. And that opens that door that allows for Arthur Mitchell to come in and run as a Democrat. And from there, I say that is the first catalyst. And there's a lot of other smaller things that happened there, but that is the first catalyst of this massive realignment. And I use his life as a way of detailing how that happens. One of the things that Dr. Benton can attest to this most of our students who are, in our, who are in our class, when we start talking about reconstruction and reconstruction politics in early 20th century American history, and you see, you see that in their eyes, they don't understand how African-Americans, all African-Americans are Republicans at this point, are Republicans, because that's, that is not what they are today. That story is intertwined into Priest's life of how that happens. And so that's how I sold it to the press. Because when I first talked to the editor, she said, who the hell cares about Oscar Stan DePriest? I said, well, <laughs> it's a story about DePriest. It's a story about DePriest, but it's more of a first-person account of this massive realignment from blacks leaving the Republican Party to the Democratic Party that most people have no clue about how and why it happened. And that's what sold the book and got it on the contract. You you have a monster on your hand, Dr. White, because, you know, with the whole elections in Georgia and Warnock and Walker, I've seen this question everywhere that blacks used to be conservative. Black people belong to the parties of Lincoln. And I'm just like, ah, come to the list. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm like, I'm interested to know what, what do you think happened? Please tell me what happened. How did they get, you know? 
Dr. Man, you and I both know that Af- many African-Americans, many, not all, because African-Americans are not a monolith. Right. We talk about this. But many African-Americans, the funny thing about it is, let me, I digress here, is the fact that many African-Americans, especially Southern African-Americans, are from a cultural and social point of view, they're very conservative. You yeah. and I both know that. Yeah, they're Caribbean very conservative. people as well. Politically, Absolutely. politically, they're not. And so I always laugh when I say that Republicans really miss the boat on a lot of that because I think from a social and cultural things, there are a lot of natural intersections yeah. that could be made there, but it's the political divide that keeps them from uniting. So, particularly issues around race. It's the issues of absolutely. race and racial policies that, that you know, you're not going to vote against your dignity. You absolutely. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, 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 so you, yeah, once you get that book out and, you know, people start digging into that, that's going to be, you're going to be on the circuit, my friend. We'll be right back. You're listening to a podcast produced by KUAF, your public radio station for more than three decades. Hello, I'm Timothy Dennis. KUAF's on-air programming features the latest news from NPR, with shows like All Things Considered, 1A, and Here and Now, locally hosted music programs on the weekend that you won't find online, local newscasts every weekday morning at 5.30 and 7.30, updates on events happening throughout the KUAF listening area, and more. To listen, tune your radio to 91.3 FM, visit our website, KUAF.com, or tell your smart speaker to play KUAF. So let's talk about this book that you and Michael Pierce uh, put out. Uh, what? How did this come about? You know, honestly, it came about as a result of, it, it's really the brainchild of Dr. Pierce. As I said before, we were coming up in 2019 and the year before, and the 100-year marker of the Elaine Race riots or that happened. And we were thinking, and all of us, you know, I know, Dr. Ben, you were, and and people at the prior center, and I was, and but we couldn't think of a way to really properly, you know, commemorate respectfully looking at the pain and the anguish and the, you know, resistance that those people uh, did that day at Hoopsport right outside of Elaine. And Dr. Pierce, Michael, showed up in my office. And like I said before, we always talk, and that's not unusual. But typically, we're talking about our families, our kids, or what's going on. And he says, hey, how about we bring in a group of people, and we talk about Elaine from a conference perspective. Um, Not just Elaine, but race, labor, and the Arkansas-Mississippi Delta to commemorate Elaine. And as I always tell the story, it was an excellent idea, and I said yes. Uh, from the beginning, but we had a problem with every great idea, you need money. And so we were able to team and, and partner with uh, Dr. Angie Maxwell, who's the director of the Blair Center for Southern Studies. And she was able to fund, with the help of Fulbright College as well, the conference. But one of her major things, uh, stipulations was she wanted the proceedings or what happened at the conference to be published for the public domain and the public good and the intellectual good. So that's how it came about. It's really the brainchild of Dr. Pierce, our, our colleague, Michael Pierce. And it started as a result of trying to remember, study, 
and also pay respects uh, for those who, you know, who lost their lives in Elaine. And, you know, at that point, that was 100 years ago. So we talked extensively about all the other massacres um, that happened. And the Elaine Race Massacre, as we talked about, was perhaps the largest one. What, what happened? What happened in Elaine? Arguably, it is the largest. And most his, historians who study the time period don't disagree with that. You know, as professionally trained historians, Dr. Benton, you know, we have to be able to so-called prove that. But we have many people who do not deny that or push back on that. The numbers of the amount of deaths, we believe, are well over 200, where there are five white casualties, but the deaths of African-Americans are believed to be over 200 there. What happens is everything you got to, you talked about earlier with Matthew. I mean, it's, it's quintessential. You set it up quite nicely and gave the context for it. As you see some African-Americans returning home from World War II, you see greater expectations and you see the unionization of sharecroppers there. And as a result of some African-Americans who had left the land, had left the South and resettled into Chicago and places, Detroit or Flint and places like that, you saw whites in the Arkansas and Mississippi Delta really needing labor and cracking down on the movement of their labor. But African-Americans saw this as a prime opportunity because of that shortage of labor in the Arkansas, Mississippi Delta to kind of renegotiate, force negotiation for better wages as a result of sharecropping. So they try to unionize and they have a meeting at a little town, a little outlet. It's not even a town called Hoopspur at a church. Whites get word of it. And although we don't know exactly what happened, but there erupts from there. A, a race riot where it would be the first time that Governor Bruff, Charles Bruff, would actually release the Arkansas National Guard. And we know that planes would actually bomb certain parts of the, you know, the town there. So it erupts in this massive race riot where later there would be 12 African-Americans who would stand trial, uh, later would be acquitted. But it completely upends, the, upends that area. And it's kind of the marker. I like to say it's the marker that most people, you know, live their lives by there. And so it's one of those things that had never really been talked about in great detail. Many African-Americans still don't like to talk about it. And when Dr. Pierce and I first came up with the notion to invite, you know, our friends in, because we have our colleagues and our friends to give papers, we said we were not just going to concentrate on the lane, but we were going to concentrate on the intersectionality that what led to a lane labor, race, uh, all these things, these, this uneasy, what I refer to in the book as this delicate dance between whites and blacks and how it plays out in the landscape there. And so each one of the essays is looking at a different element of race and labor and the interplay of those two and the intersectionality of those two in the Arkansas, Mississippi Delta. But Elaine is the hub of the spokes that extend from there. And Dr. Pearson, I very early on, we decided that we were going to dedicate not only this work, but that conference to the people who survived and who lost their lives and to the family members uh, that who are still you know, there today as a way of trying to pay homage to their resistance to a system that belittled them and economically exploited them. Wow. So here we have sharecroppers who realize that after years of being exploited, 
as we know, sharecroppers were in a system of debt peonage, that they could unionize, you know, and unions like the progressive farmers, you know, come to be a threat to white supremacy because they wanted to keep black people in place so they could exploit their labor. Absolutely. Fascinating. And it leads to this level of brutality where bombs are dropped by the state, similar to what we see in Tulsa, which is absolutely fascinating. And I mean, the intersections with ideas of, you know, unions and, you know, black people turning left because they'd just come back from World War One, right? And the Red Scare. And all of that is intertwined with this as well. So uh, you had these uh, speakers come up here um, at the prior center and give talks, but uh, it's also how the, the massacres remembered. There's a little bit of a conflict over that, isn't there? There's a great deal of conflict over there about that. And then like with most, with most history uh, of that time period, uh, who were writing that history, they're reinforcing a lot of the works that come out are reinforcing this. Well, you know, Dr. Ben, you and I call this meta narrative, uh, this meta narrative of Negro uprising and Negro revolts and whites had to put down these Negroes vaults and that, and we all know that was not the truth. So there's a body or, you know, a body of work and literature out there that stems from the twenties for the thirties, forties and fifties that really hone in on that. And what we start to see is with the deepening in, African-American history as form being formalized in the 1950s and 60s taking root, we start to refute all of that earlier work and saying that's hogwash. That's this, all this lost cause BS that we know that's not true. And as a result of that, we have colleagues who have come along and written, you know, really what we believe to be more accurately accurate narratives of what happened in the lane. And this book is just, a, an addition uh, to what we believe a more accurate rendition of the historical events that happened in Elaine and not this. But yes, it's this blacks revolted in Elaine. Uh, whites had to put down this revolt, this uprising uh, there. So blacks, again, these black male bodies that you should fear, and not only these black male bodies, but these armed black male bodies that had to be put down this this pending revolt needed to be put down and that's a lot of that narrative that comes out of that and so the later bodies of work have definitely refuted a lot of those notions or those old racist tropes that we know existed and still exist even today in some in some element many elements of, of society we, we live in we're recording this now a week before the midterm election when this will air we will most likely have a governor who claims that education systems are indoctrinating children and not teaching them. When we look at the history of Arkansas and especially the race history of Arkansas, what are our public schools getting right and what are our public schools missing the boat on? Imagine that's a really loaded question. Yeah, he's setting you up, man. <laughs> 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 you know, I'm, I'm just... Well, let me let me give you let me give you an out here. Let me uh, <laughs> let's let's redirect that question a little bit. When we think of the way we talk about Arkansas history and public schools in Arkansas, what could schools be doing better to tell a more full story of the complicated history that we have here in Arkansas around race? 
absolutely. And I'll go back to your original one as well. Telling a complete history and a complete narrative, it not only empowers African-Americans and minoritized people, but it also helps the majority. And those two things are not mutually exclusive. We are living, our kids will inherit a ever-increasing globalized world. They will not grow up, live in the same town. They will be introduced. They will, they're being trained for jobs that many of us don't even know about now. And so they're going to inherit a really diversified world in many aspects, and not just along race and ethnicity, but along that spectrum of diversity and what that means. And I feel like as we, as our Kansans and our public school systems, are not doing not only black kids, brown kids, any type of kid who sits in a classroom, white kids, a service when we are not equipping them to deal with the real world in which they are inheriting. That is the truth. We are ever growing increasingly into a multicultural, multi-everything world. And we know the studies and every, you know, every benchmark tells us that we're better because of that. We know that. But yet we have a society that pushes back against those notions when we know that everything tells us when you put a diverse group of thinkers, people who do not look like each other, work like each other, that there's innovation and discovery that comes out of that multiplicity of thinking and lived experiences. But yet we have a school system in the state of Arkansas continues to produce what we refer to as this meta narrative that continues to, to hammer these same things. So I will say one is not mutually exclusive of the other. I think white kids need to benefit from that just as much it empowers them, just as much as it empowers black kids. But I will sit and say this, when you continue to teach what we refer to as history in the way that maybe Dr. Benton and I were taught it when we were growing up, and I had a professor once look at me and he told me, he said, could you, you wonder why some of Black kids or Latinx kids are not doing well in American history? And I said, no, why? You know, he said, how would you feel if you sit there three days a week, three days a week, my new are two days a week, and you heard nothing about yourself and everything was about someone else? Everything. Think about this, Matthew. George Washington and every other demarker was about someone else who didn't look like you, who didn't speak like you, culturally was not similar to you. But yet, when we come to you and how you fill in the gaps, you've been a slave, you've been a problem in the civil rights movement, and you've been a crack baby and war on crime. And if you look at that timeline, that's really what we say about black folks in that meta narrative. We look at you come from a you come from the dark continent that nothing of cultural relevance, nothing of, comes from there. And we know that's not true. We know that's not true. The great empires of, of, of Western Africa, we know that's not true, but yet we don't teach our kids that. So when your kid, Matthew, or my kid doesn't learn that, we absolutely hurt both of them. This is not a zero-sum game, meaning by empowering one group does not disempower the other. And until we can detangle that, until we can say what is good for you is also good for the other, then we're going to continue to run in a circle. And we wonder why, why minoritized kids, if you sit a kid in a classroom and you don't tell them this in so many ways, but what you're really saying is 
You've really been nothing of cultural attributes in this country. You've been a slave. You created problems. You were a disruptor. And then we had to create a war on crime as a result of you. Then mass incarceration of you. You tell me from a meta-narrative point of view, as a black kid sitting in a classroom, is that empowering? As Du Bois says, how does it feel to be a problem? <laughs> exactly. Because that's what the meta-narrative says. That is exactly what that meta-narrative says here. And so that is the problem that we have. And now we can expand that now, whether it is binary, non-binary, gender, whether it's transgender, it all plays out the same. We have people who are not, can feel that they fit into a society, that we have a demographic group of people saying, you are a problem. You are a menace. You are a de degenerate. How can we educate kids with something we know is not true? So to me, that is the problem. And it hurts your kid, Matthew, just as much as it hurts my kid. And until we can get people to understand that, then we're just going to run around in a circle. Yeah, we have to confront the past if we are going to be, you know, truly free. History will not let go of us. <laughs> You know, history will not let us go. Absolutely. You know, it's you know we're as 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 bald as Baldwin says. You know, we're 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 pinned to a history, or perhaps to a lie. You know, that keeps us from creating our better selves and a better world. So, I'll say this. You know, when Baldwin said, "I used to grow up," when Baldwin said, "I am not your Negro." When he said that, when he said, I am not your Negro, that was him throwing off every yoke, chain, racist throat that America had ever thrown on someone who looks like him. That was him saying, I, I am who I am, regardless of what you say I am. I am not your Negro. I'm not your Meaning boy. that was him. <laughs> exactly. Because a history and educational system teaches certain things. And we as African-Americans, we say this all the time. Uh, and, you know, anybody, you better teach your young men and young women who they are, because if you don't do it, society and the educational system will. And that's problematic. This is good stuff. Thank you so much, Dr. White. Thank you for this great information. And we are looking forward to the book. At the end of this semester, I will be checking in to see that every T and I has been crossed and dotted and that this is into the press and we will be, you know, going forward with all of this stuff. On another note, Dr. White and I are also leading the study abroad to Ghana, too. So, you know, for students who might be listening, you're in for a great treat as well. Thank you again, Matthew. Thank you again, Karee. As always, I appreciate the time. Undisciplined is hosted by Dr. Karee Banton and produced by me, Matthew Moore. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't had a chance yet, make sure to follow or subscribe on your podcast app.